0: One of the greatest pieces of fraud, I repeat the word fraud on the American public by special interest groups that I have ever seen in my lifetime.
1: From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, and in Cottage Grove on Queso. in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, on Maui-Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans' WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the progressive voices channel, netroots radio, indie media weekly, fyi nation, nicole sandler.com, radio free brooklyn, gdpr revolution 99, workforce rising and detour talk, blanketing planet earth 5 days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for Joining us today and uh, minutes before we go to air here, uh, well, a very helpful tweet from CBS News. Atlanta city workers are using pencils and paper after hackers demanded $51,000 in Bitcoin to unblock access to electronic records. CBS reports that computers were turned back on on Tuesday in Atlanta. But that doesn't mean it's back to business as usual. Five days after a ransomware attack crippled the city's computer network, officials are still trying to recover from the hack that has blocked access to electronic records, leaving city jails and municipal courts running manually with paper and pens. Many city employees remain without access to the e- to email or to Internet. Atlanta's courts also said they were unable to process ticket payments because of the breach, whether online or in person. The use of ransomware, which lets hackers seize control of computers belonging to individuals, businesses and local governments, has been on the rise in recent years. CBS notes that more than twelve hundred ransomware incidents were detected every day last year. According to a new report from the security software firm Symantec, investigators, including the FBI, are working to figure out the identity of the culprits of the attack in Atlanta, who demanded uh, about $51,000 in Bitcoin to unlock the shuttered systems. Atlanta's mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, declined to indicate if city officials are considering paying the ransom. She says we are dealing with a hostage situation. She declined to specify when the city expects to be fully operational again. And uh, it's not just Atlanta, beyond Atlanta, a suburban town named Loganville, Georgia, about 30 miles away. They're advising residents to monitor their bank accounts and credit reports because a hacker may have gained access to a city server there in Loganville. That possible hack occurred on March 15th. And uh, personal and financial information, including Social Security numbers and banking information, may have been compromised, as the city announced Monday on Facebook. Yes, that would be about 10 days after the hack actually occurred. The folks in Loganville are hearing about it. So it is somewhat amusing that amidst this very attack on the city of Atlanta And, of course, in Loganville, Georgia, that the state of Georgia itself, lawmakers there are now in the middle of a last minute crunch time battle to pass a new bill in the state legislature that would finally replace the state's 100 percent unverifiable debold, touchscreen computer voting systems, which have undermined the uh, democracy in Georgia since they were first installed back in 2002. This bill would replace that system with paper ballots. Well, that sounds encouraging, doesn't it? At least until one bothers to pay close attention to what lawmakers are actually deceptively describing as paper ballots. Yes, they're paper, but they're still marked by, you guessed it, Touchscreen computers. And uh, could you imagine if a ransomware attack knocked out a statewide computer voting system like the one in Georgia, which relies on computers uh, for people to vote at all? Could you imagine what would happen if we had a ransomware on Election Day? We'll be joined momentarily by longtime election integrity expert Marilyn Marks, who has been working around the clock for the last several weeks now, trying to raise attention to, to to light off the siren to what Georgia lawmakers are actually planning to do, and she may be having some luck. We'll we'll get an update on that from her shortly as the uh, state legislature comes to the end of their session in just two days. Also joining us in a bit, and now, is Desi Doyen. <laughs> Hi, Des. Hi, I am here. You will be joining us with a uh, Green News report coming up in a little bit, and there's actually surprisingly enough some good news in that uh, massive omnibus bill that I uh, almost said George W. Bush, that that <laughs> Donald Trump recently signed, uh, saying he would never do, never sign such a thing again.
2: Yeah, there is some good news in there. So, yeah, hang in there. There is good news coming.
1: And as a matter of fact, it's a good thing that that bill was, what was it, 2,232 pages or something. Uh, th- that dude can't even read five pages, much less <laughs> 2,232.
2: Yeah, so, so, some good stuff snuck in. Snuck in, there. in.
1: exactly. But hey, uh, that sound you may be hearing today, that may be the screeching and creaking of the Overton window, finally shifting towards a long overdue change in the way that we think about and act upon gun safety legislation in this country and perhaps the way we view and deal with the Second Amendment itself. Uh, the Overton Window. For for those who are not familiar with the concept, uh, well, actually, Des, uh, I have the uh, description from Wikipedia. But would you like to uh, try to explain Take the Overton Window it. instead?
2: Uh, yeah, my understanding of the Overton Window is the frame of acceptable discourse. Essentially, you can talk about this stuff, but you can't talk about that. And as the country has shifted more to the right, to the uh, conservative far right wing, that we have changed what is acceptable in politics and in conversation.
1: Well, well done. Thank you. You are really did I get uh, yeah, it right? Yeah, pretty good. Yay. You are my own personal Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, they describe it this way: the Overton Window, also known as the Window of Discourse, is the range of ideas tolerated in public discourse. Ah. The originator is Joe Joseph P. Overton, who is a vice president former vice president of Mackinac Center for Public Policy who in his description of his window claimed that an idea's political viability depends mainly on whether it falls within the window rather than on politicians individual preferences. So, according to Overton's description, his window includes a range of policies considered politically acceptable in the current climate of public opinion. Which a politician can recommend without being considered too extreme to gain or keep public office. So pretty close to your definition, oh, Deb. Uh, so to that end, I think the Overton window just took a fairly huge lurch to, well, let's call it the left today. Retired Supreme Court Justice, John Paul Stevens believes the students and demonstrators who protested over the past weekend for gun uh, control, gun safety reform, should seek a full repeal, a full repeal of the U.S. Constitution's Second Amendment. Writing in an op-ed published by The New York Times on Tuesday, Stevens observes a concern that a national standing army might pose a threat to the security of the separate states led to the adoption of the Second Amendment. And he said today that concern is a relic of the 18th century. But his his op-ed is brief here, so I think it's worth sharing as much as I can of this in full. He writes, Rarely in my lifetime have I seen the type of civic engagement school children and their supporters demonstrated in Washington and other major cities throughout the country this past Saturday. These demonstrations demand our respect. They reveal the broad public support for legislation to minimize the risk of mass killings of school children and others in our society. That support is a clear sign to lawmakers to enact legislation prohibiting civilian ownership of semi-automatic weapons, increasing the minimum age to buy a gun from 18 to 21 years old and establishing more comprehensive background checks on all purchasers of firearms. But, John Paul Stevens, the former U.S. Supreme Court justice, adds, the demonstrators should seek more effective and more lasting reform. They should demand a repeal of the Second Amendment. Concern, He writes that a national standing army might pose a threat to the security of the separate states led to the adoption of that amendment, which provides that, quote, a well-regulated, well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed today writes Justice Stevens. That concern is a relic of the 18th century. He goes on to offer some actual history here, not the rewritten history of the National Rifle Association about the Second Amendment, but some actual history of how the Second Amendment has been regarded since the founding of our country and at least up until the NRA began to rewrite the facts to eventually get a favorable, if very slim, majority ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court in 2008 after decades of, uh, of failure. Stevens writes, for over 200 years after the adoption of the Second Amendment, it was uniformly understood as not not placing any limit on either federal or state authority to enact gun control legislation. In 1939, for example, the Supreme Court unanimously held that Congress could prohibit the possession of of a sawed-off shotgun because that weapon had no reasonable relation to the preservation or efficiency of a, quote, well-regulated militia. During the years when Warren Berger was our chief justice, he says, from 1969 to 1986, no judge, federal or state, as far as I'm aware, expressed any doubt as to the limited coverage of that amendment. When organizations like the National Rifle Association disagreed with that position and began their campaign claiming that federal regulation of firearms curtailed Second Amendment rights, Chief Justice Berger publicly characterized the NRA as perpetrating, perpetrating, quote, one of the greatest pieces of fraud. I repeat the word fraud on the American public by special interest groups that I have ever seen in my lifetime. That was from the chief justice of the Supreme Court for almost 20 years. And in case you don't believe me. Des, you dug up this uh, from, uh, is it, 19... uh, 1991. 1991. Uh, Here's Chief Justice Warren Berger, I think, on the PBS NewsHour, uh, saying exactly that.
0: If I were writing the Bill of Rights now, there wouldn't be any such thing as the Second Amendment. Which says... That uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the defense of the state, the people's rights to bear arms. This has been the subject of one of the greatest pieces of fraud... I repeat the word fraud on the American public by special interest groups that I have ever seen in my lifetime. Now just look at those words. There are only three lines to that amendment. A well-regulated militia. If the militia, which was going to be the state army, was going to be well-regulated, why shouldn't 16 and 17 and 18 or any other age persons be regulated in the use of arms the way an automobile is regulated?
1: That was the former Supreme Court Chief Justice Warren Berger uh, saying that, uh, yes, the, uh, what the NRA is perpetrating is one of the greatest pieces of fraud by a special interest group that I have ever seen. And that fraud continues in 2008. Justice uh, John Paul Stevens writes in his op-ed at the New York Times today: The Supreme Court overturned Chief Justice Burger's and others' long, long settled understanding of the Second Amendment's limited reach by ruling in uh, in District of Columbia versus Heller that there was an individual right to bear arms. Stevens says, "I was among the four dissenters," uh, and, and that's right. Uh, just to be clear, up until uh, 2008. Since the founding of our republic, the U.S. Supreme Court had never ruled this way, not until 2008, until the now late and very radical right wing Justice Antonin Scalia wrote his five to four majority opinion in that case. Justice Stevens says that decision, which I remained convinced was uh, I remained convinced was wrong and certainly was debatable has provided the NRA with a propaganda weapon of immense power. Overturning that decision via a constitutional amendment to get rid of the Second Amendment would be simple, simple, (laughs) and would do more to weaken the NRA's ability to stymie legislative debate and block constructive gun control legislation than any other available option. I'm not so sure it's simple, but uh, he goes on to say that simple but dramatic action would move Saturday's marchers closer to their objective than any other possible reform. It would eliminate the only legal rule that protects sellers of firearms in the United States, unlike every other market in the world. It would make our school children safer than they have been since 2008 and honor the memories of the many, indeed far too many, victims. Of recent gun violence. That is retired Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens in the New York Times today. In response, Chris, uh, Chris Cox, the executive director of the NRA's lobbying arm, said Tuesday that the NRA. Uh, As well as a majority of the American people and the Supreme Court believe in the Second Amendment's right to self-protection, and we will unapologetically continue to fight to protect this fundamental freedom. Of course, the Second Amendment doesn't actually say anything at all about self-protection, as uh, Chris Cox mischaracterizes it there, but that gives you an idea of how the NRA has been able to sort of move the Overton window to the right on this issue that he can you know say that that oh the second amendment uh, the right to self protection uh, he can just say that without really being challenged at all on it that's not what the second amendment actually says he may be right about how the majority of americans currently feel about the second amendment but i would suggest uh along with john paul stevens op ed here that you are uh you are likely to hear a lot more about repealing or amending the second amendment which I don't think it will be simple at all, as Justice Stephen uh, s- suggests. Um, but at least we can start having that conversation in this country. And hopefully having that conversation makes reform that uh, all the more possible. It begins to move that Overton window again back to what I'm calling the left. It makes it all the more possible to have discussion of what is politically viable in this country shifts it back closer to where it had been for almost the entire history of our nation. By the way, uh, evidence of that window uh, moving has already been uh, making itself apparent. If if it's not if the window's not lurching towards more gun safety reform. It's certainly moving in that direction. And this uh, this Daily Caller coverage, this is the Daily Caller, a right wing rag founded by Fox News's Tucker Carlson of all places. I want to read their reporting on a poll from Fox News of all places. So this is a right wing rag reporting on the polling from a right wing media outlet, Fox News. Uh, And I'm going to read their version of it just so I'm not accused of spinning the numbers to serve my purposes here or or some such. Daily uh, Caller reports, protecting citizens from gun violence should take precedence over protecting gun owners' rights, a majority of voters said, according to a Fox News poll released on Sunday. They write, it is more important to protect people from gun violence, 53 percent of respondents said in a survey of registered voters, compared to just 40 percent who said it's more important to protect the individual right to bear arms. There's broad support for several gun. So 50, that's 53 to 40 in favor of more protections. There's broad support for several gun control measures proponents say would reduce gun violence. The Fox poll also found just over 90 percent of registered voters said they favor requiring universal background checks for all gun purchases, including private sales. Ninety percent. Eighty four percent of voters favored mandatory mental health screening for gun buyers. And 72 percent said they supported raising from 18 to 21 the minimum age to purchase a firearm. Support for banning so-called assault weapons, typically understood to mean AR-15-style rifles, was less firm, but a comfortable majority of 60% agreed those firearms should be prohibited. Wow, 60%. In a Fox News poll, as reported by The Daily Caller. Now, this poll was taken ahead of the uh, March for Our Lives uh, on Saturday in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere, calling for stricter uh, gun safety measures following the massacre in February in the uh, in, in Parkland, Florida. Um, but uh, boosting security at schools was a popular idea, says this Fox News poll. About 7 in 10 respondents, that's 70%, supported putting armed guards in school. However, allowing training, uh, allowing trained teachers to carry concealed weapons in school, which is one of Donald Trump's favorite ideas, far less popular. Just 37 percent of the people surveyed said that they supported arming teachers. So, again, that is coming from the right wing of the right wing. Uh, who uh, far and away, 90 percent, 80 percent, 72 percent, you don't see those sort of numbers on anything. Sixty percent of a Fox News poll says that, yes, we should ban assault weapons. The Overton window is definitely moving. Uh, It takes time to change. It would take time to uh, to certainly to change the uh, Second Amendment. Uh, I think it would take a lot of time. Uh, but that's what uh, that's what's required for change Even simple change, much less amending the U.S. Constitution And to that end, we are finally beginning to see some change When it comes to our nation's voting systems Which we have been covering as an often very lonely voice uh, Here on the Bradcast and at Bradblog.com for many, many years But now, uh, I-, I think people are finally beginning to understand the need for paper ballots That's good uh, and uh, th- there are changes being proposed around the country to do that. But uh, as we're seeing in Georgia today, where a raging battle continues in the state legislature at this hour, the change toward paper ballots might not be as wonderful as it seems. And uh, in Georgia, we may be looking at another scam to keep actual, simple, verifiable Democratic elections still out of reach for many voters in Georgia. The great barcoded BMD ballot battle continues as Marilyn Marks joins us next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away.
2: And thanks, Georgia.
0: Georgia, the whole day through. through. Just an old, sweet song
1: keeps Georgia on my mind. I wish it was sweet songs that kept Georgia on my mind. They're on my mind for a completely different reason once again. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, yeah, uh, Georgia has been on my mind quite a bit of late for some reason. And we are going to head down there. But first, let's get there via my old home state of Missouri. KMOV in St. Louis uh, reported on Monday night. One lawmaker in Missouri, is urging the state to take a step back to go forward. As the report at KMOV unhelpfully reports it, State Senator Bill Eigel is proposing electronic voting machines get the axe and paper ballots make a return. Eigel says going back to paper ballots would create protection by having a hard copy of each vote. He also believes it will save taxpayer money which I guess is an important argument to make in the now very right-wing show-me state. St. Louis County has about 1,500 electronic machines that cost about $5,000 per unit. Senate Bill 1067 in Missouri would require counties to phase out the fully electronic 100% unverifiable voting machines that are often used in both St. Louis and Kansas City in favor of systems using hand-marked paper ballots. If approved, the measure would take effect next year. Oh, and did I mention that State Senator Bill Eigel is a Republican? His bill, I looked up uh, 1067, uh, would approve a voting system that... Only one that produces the election results from paper ballots that voters have marked by hand or in the case of disabled voters who need assistance from paper ballots that have been marked by paper ballot marking devices designed to assist disabled voters. The text goes on to read upon the removal of any direct recording electronic touchscreen vote counting machine from the election authority's inventory. Because of mechanical malfunction, wear and tear or any other reason, the machine shall not be replaced and no additional direct recording electronic voting machine shall be added to the election authority's inventory. The official ballot shall be this. uh, This legislation says quite clearly, the official ballot shall be a paper ballot that is hand marked by the voter or in the case of disabled voters who need assistance by a paper ballot marking device designed to assist the disabled. See? Is that so hard? Did I mention that Missouri State Senator Eigel was a Republican? Now, the bill may have a way to go in Missouri, but it's a move in the right direction. That is nice to see for a very welcome change. We can fight later about how to count those hand-marked Handmarked paper ballots, either with a computer op scan system or by hand, which is the only way to know that any ballot has been tabulated as per voter intent. But at least we will have a paper ballot in Missouri that we can know has been verified by the voter because he or she has marked it by hand by themselves. And uh, for those who wish to use an assistive device to help them mark a paper ballot due to a disability, well, there will be such a device that they can choose to use if they want to. No more than one per polling place is required under the Federal Help America Vote Act, or HAVA. So this should be very simple by now, but obviously it is not. So I'm still covering it some 15 years after I began doing so. "...jurisdictions, including my own, out here in Los Angeles County, the largest voting jurisdiction in the nation, are, for reasons that must be well above my pay grade uh, to understand, they are preparing to move to electronic touchscreen ballot marking devices that, yes, print paper ballots, but they are computer-marked paper ballots, which may or may not reflect the intent of the voters." After an election, it's impossible to know if any of the computer marked ballots were verified as accurately reflecting voter intent. In Georgia right now, where voters have been forced to use 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen DRE or direct recording electronic devices for years, And where election after election has gone disastrously wrong and where the voter file and the programming files for ballots on these DREs were found unprotected online just before the 2016 election, including a file, by the way, that included administrative passwords for the state's 100 percent unverifiable DRE touchscreen machines. In Georgia, they are finally preparing to move to a paper ballot system. Well, that sounds good until you bother to look at the legislation that lawmakers are hoping to pass before the legislative session ends this Thursday at midnight. SB 403 will move the state to a system of touchscreen computer ballot marking devices, or BMDs. Those systems that print out those computer-marked paper ballots. Worse still, they, like the ones already coming to Los Angeles... We'll use barcodes or QR codes instead of actually human-readable selections on those paper val- ba- paper ballots in order to tally the vote. Are we nuts? Why, yes, I think we might be. The Bold touchscreen DRE systems used across the entire state of Georgia were first purchased back in 2002, and they have been undermining democracy and the confidence in SAME in the Peach State ever since. So will the state now be dumb enough to purchase another 100 percent unverifiable voting system for use for the next 15 years? Joining us now to discuss this last minute legislative fight in Georgia and what barcoded BMD ballots may mean for the rest of the country is Marilyn Marks. She's a longtime expert advocate for free and fair elections as executive director of the Coalition for Good Governance, a nonpartisan nonprofit committed to fair elections and government transparency. In 2009, as a Republican, Marilyn Marks, after losing a a narrow loss to become the mayor of Aspen, Maryland discovered the vulnerabilities in Colorado's election systems firsthand and began devoting herself full-time over subsequent years to election integrity litigation and lobbying efforts to make elections more transparent and, yes, verifiable. Last time Marilyn joined us on the show, I believe it was to discuss her then-recently filed lawsuit hoping to end the state of Georgia's use of DRE touchscreen voting systems. That suit by her group continues But she joins us today to discuss her personal concerns about Georgia's um, state Senate Bill 403 that is either on the verge of passing or not passing before the session ends in Georgia this Thursday. Republican Secretary of State Brian Kemp, who oversaw years of disastrous elections there, including the breach of those voter files and ballot programming files back in 2016, he's now running for governor of Georgia and he supports this measure for some reason. Marilyn Marks, welcome back to the broadcast.
3: Thank you so much Brad. I appreciate your having me.
1: This uh, this bill SB uh, do I, is it 403 or 304? Now I'm getting it. Four, 403. 403. Thank you. If it if it gets uh, passed as it's currently drafted, it would uh, as I understand it finally get rid of all of Georgia's 15-year-old incredibly hackable 100% unverifiable Diebold touchscreen DREs. Isn't that a good thing, Marilyn?
3: <laughs> I'm not so sure it is, Brad. I, I'm afraid that we may be going from bad to worse. Um, but because people today at least understand that their system is unverifiable, unauditable, and um, really a lot of guesswork. Um, unfortunately, um, this new system that they are so determined to find a way to put in Um, it probably kind of has the look from a distance of a paper system, but it really is just as unverifiable. I'm afraid that it is going to look like something that it certainly is not. And, um, that, it seems to be confusing the lawmakers who are in their last 50 hours of the legislative session, and they're rushing to pass things, and, um, I'm very fearful that without some serious pressure, they're going
1: to pass this crazy bill. Yeah, I'm uh, concerned about it, too. I wish they could just, uh, you know, look a little bit to the Northwest, uh, to to Missouri, to that uh, lawmaker's bill up there who seems to have it right, uh, specifying uh, marked by hand. We we were joined by uh, California attorney-turned-election integrity advocate Jenny Cohn on this show uh, a few weeks ago to discuss uh, her article that she published at bradblog.com about uh, the concerns that she has about these ballot marking device uh, systems, these BMDs, she describes them as very expensive electric pencils. Uh, I know she's also been working hard to try and block or amend this SB 403 in Georgia, but what are your specific concerns about, uh, about ballot marking devices that they're trying to put in place in Georgia?
3: Right, and it's the electronic ballot marking devices that create barcodes, where the barcode becomes the official part of the tabulation. And for people who want to kind of get a picture of what I'm talking about, and it's a lot easier once you look at a picture, for those people who are on Mm -hmm. Twitter, if they would go to my Twitter account, which is Marilyn R. Marks in the numeral one, Mm -hmm. Marilyn R. Marks one, and they'll see a picture of a cartoon girl at a cartoon ballot box. Um, And um, if you look at my pinned tweet, there's a tweet there that has several screens on it and it's called don't let georgia do this again and it's referring to what you were referring to brad about the 2002 uh, acceptance of unverifiable dre's georgia was the first state in the nation as i think you indicated mm-hmm. to go with with such a system then it encouraged other states oh well, if it's okay for georgia it's a big state with millions of voters do, will do. That's what we're worried about now. But if you go to that, to that particular um, uh, Twitter moment, what people will see in there is uh, an example of exactly what would be counted by, a, uh, by this type of uh, electronic ballot marking device that they want to put in for all people and not just for those with um, accessible needs, mm-hmm. but everybody would be voting on a device where their, their votes were recorded in a barcode. And, yes, there would be a list of what they purportedly, um, what those barcodes purportedly represent and how the person voted. The problem is, of course, what can be embedded in those barcodes may be very different from the human readable list that is printed out.
1: So even if voters uh, look at, at this piece of paper that is spit out by the computer, it may show right. uh, their their choice for president or Congress or uh, local initiatives and so on and so forth, uh, just as they think they specified it. But the system itself won't actually count that human readable language. It will count that barcode. And when we say barcode, it's like uh, what you get, you know, that we run through uh, the scanner at the grocery store or whatever. Yep. It's an actual barcode like that or a QR code, those square-looking ones. Either right. way, they're not human-readable. They can say the complete opposite of what is actually printed on that ballot, correct?
3: Exactly correct. And we don't even call it a ballot, the, the human-readable portion. Mm-hmm. Even the vendors are know better than to call it a ballot. They call that a ballot summary card. And, Brad, that is just the list of what you purportedly voted for. And, and your crazy ballots in California, where you've got, what, 16, 20 ballot questions at times, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. For a voter to be able to, quote, verify that card, they're going to have to remember what all 20 questions were. You don't get any hints. It'll just say ballot question 3A, ballot question 4J, and you have to remember what that was, and whether you voted yes or no.
1: And uh, I should also note uh, one of the uh, most insidious things I think about this is that uh, these these ballot cards or summary cards, whatever they call, they will only they're supposed to, I guess, show the things that you have selected. So if you voted in uh, let's say, ten of those initiatives and the ballot only, prints out, this ballot card only prints out nine of them, good luck in noticing that one of them was dropped off of this long ballot card that is printed out. But actually, Maryland, that doesn't matter, because in the end, the system <laughs> isn't even counting that, it's counting right. the barcode. That is exactly the point. And some of the people who
3: like to claim that these are, quote, verifiable ballot cards, mm-hmm. they're they are saying, well, if we have really robust audits, we will we'll catch that. Well, nobody has audits that are that great. And first of all, people just are not able to truly verify that, that ballot card. And that is the huge fundamental logical flaw in all of this. But going back to your, your comment mm-hmm. that the barcode itself is what's being tabulated, that, and the voter can't read it and imagine what can happen to it in the various places it could be hacked, you you mentioned it's like the, what you the groceries at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. So think of, somebody gave this example. So you know when they change the price of an item uh, to increase the price or decrease the price, they don't change the barcode. Right. They change the programming. Yep. So yep. you can kind of see the analogy. that um, people will change the programming, barcode, you know. um, You can just imagine the opportunities to do that. And there is no good reason, as Professor Richard DeMillo of Georgia Tech Mm has been following this very closely, because the Capitol, of course, is right there in his backyard, and he is a world-renowned computer security specialist Mm -hmm. and systems specialist. And he keeps making the point there is no good reason to have barcodes on ballots. There is no good reason. It just introduces all sorts of potential for risk of both error and manipulation.
1: Now, would you feel better, Marilyn Marks, if uh, the barcode was not on these ballots? Because I would still have concerns even without the barcodes, these printed ballots, you know, after an election, there is no way to know if any voter has uh, verified any of the, even the human-readable portion of that ballot card. W- would, but would you feel better if there was no ballot no. cards, if it was oh. only the text?
3: <laughs> no. No. I want a hand-marked paper ballot. And that um, doesn't need to be verified. that It is verified when, when the voter um, fills in the oval or the square. It doesn't need to be verified. We know what that voter's intent was. Now we can debate whether it's good to um, uh, to to run those through optical scanner for counting as you know mm-hmm. I think that is a practical solution and then do very significant hand count audits to um, to verify that the that the machine count was correct but um, the input needs to be a very solid auditable source and that is where we know exactly what the voter intent was, that we don't have to guess.
1: I saw, I believe I saw one of the uh, state senators, uh, who I think is a candidate for secretary of state in Georgia, make the case on uh, Twitter that if this, uh, if this bill, this SB 403, that they're trying to pass at the last minute in Georgia, if it doesn't pass, the state will continue to use the same terrible uh, touchscreen DRE systems uh, that they've been using for all of these years uh, moving forward in 2018 and 2020. What's your response to that, Marilyn?
3: Well, it's a silly argument because, um, first of all, they already have the authority in the law, and they actually use it for using uh, hand-marked paper ballots uh, counted by optical scan machines. They use it for their mail-in ballots, as most states do, Brad. And... um, so of course they already have the authority. They have the equipment. They could convert to it um, within a few weeks without a problem. They could be using it for uh, 2018 um, uh, fall elections. They, they could have done it.
1: They could for just for switch minute. to hand marked paper ballots to da- immediately.
3: They certainly could, and in fact they have already a thousand scanners in the state, and we know where another thousand are that they could have for for just the asking. Um, and in fact, in the um, Coalition for Good Governance lawsuit that you mentioned mm-hmm. as, as uh, we've started the program, um, that's exactly what we will be asking the court to do, is to require the state to use paper ballots for the November 2018 election, knowing that they already own, now. Yeah, yeah, they're the, the old DeBolt systems, and we don't love them, but of course it does set up a paper ballot hand-marked auditable trail. And that's far better than DREs.
1: Those are the old Bold optical scanners uh, right. That, right. that at least they take paper, hand-marked paper ballots. Uh, Marilyn, some of the national election integrity groups, uh, voting rights groups like uh, Common Cause and Verified Voting had at one time, uh, as I understand it, been supporting this bill in the state of Georgia, SB 403. Uh, is that still the case? How, that are, is, are they still that is
3: no longer the case, thank goodness. It's, it's uh, my, about about a week and a half ago or so, maybe two weeks ago um they began to realize the dangers of this and are now all opposing the bill and i'm hopeful that they are not going to agree to any last minute amendments there are just too many things wrong with this bill brad <laughs> as a matter of fact it does not even require basic uh locks and chain of custody on on the ballots or the balloting equipment um, I mean, just it, it, it is it is flawed from top to bottom.
1: I know that things are changing quickly on the ground right now there in yes. Georgia as we come to the end of the legislative session. What do do you have any? What is the current status, as best you can figure it out, uh, right now for SB four hundred three? It
3: looks like it um, for, it is still in the Rules Committee uh, of the House. Mm-hmm. It's already passed through the Senate, um, and it has come to the House had some amendments it's waiting in the rules committee for a vote to take it to the floor that could come yet today brad that um that they have an emergency rules committee meeting they'll be meeting late tonight in session and it could get voted on as Mm. early as this evening um it it could have rules committee approval tomorrow we understand that there may be amendments going on but there's something that your listeners could do that would be helpful good what Okay, if they, if they go to my Twitter account that mm-hmm. we just talked about, Marilyn R. Marks, uh, it's Roman numeral one, Marilyn R. Marks one, um, they will see in the pinned um, tweet there mm-hmm. a list of the key four or five phone calls that we would like for them to make to the voicemails or live, if they can get it, um, uh, phone numbers for the key decision-makers on this. And I've even included a requested message that I would like for them to to make to the people that they reach, including the governor's office, explaining this is something that no one out-of-state, in-state, wants to see happen. Is that Would that be
1: for in-state-only in people to call, or no, should out-of-state no, people call as well?
3: people should call as well because we don't want this insidious disease of these things as we call it son of dre's um uh, going on to other states the minute that georgia uh, accepts this the vendors will be out in other states trying to do the same thing change the definition of ballot to include barcodes and pointing to georgia as hey look the whole state of georgia just said this was okay So I would say from a self-interest standpoint, other voters across the United States should pick up the phone and call Georgia and tell them, don't do this to us again. I you will, did it to us 15 years ago. Yes,
1: uh, fool us once. Uh, I <laughs> will I will be sure to link over to your Twitter feed and to that post where people can make these calls, these polite calls. Please be polite when you call. But, uh, you know, make it clear that, no, we don't want barcoded ballots. Uh, and, frankly, we don't want computer-marked ballots at all. Right. We'd like hand-marked verifiable hand-marked paper ballots. It doesn't seem like it should be uh, this difficult. And to be clear, Marilyn, before I let you go, uh, this is not a Democratic versus Republican argument. I think uh, you yourself are are a Republican. There are many Democrats who are arguing for these BMD systems and these barcodes for reasons that I really don't understand. Um, Yeah. Yeah
3: we've managed to convert them in georgia now um, in the in the senate um, all the democrats voted for this before it was explained to them but we understand that the democratic house caucus is with us on this Really, the democratic house caucus all of the election integrity groups and as far as we know every voter every regular citizen voter we have found they're on our side this is done being done by a handful of republican leaders who seem to be aligned with the voting machine companies and that is not a good alignment. I would like to say, Brad, before we go, that I I definitely would thank you for letting me do this. But if people want to keep up to date with what's happening here, mm-hmm. let me give a text number that people can text to okay. to ask for updates. And we'll just put them on our routine update. And that is 980-292-4042. and that is also in my um, Twitter uh, moment Mm -hmm. that you will be pointing people to.
1: I will include that uh, number as well. Marilyn uh, Marks, the ironically named Marilyn Marks. By the way, when you look up her uh, her Twitter address, it's not Marks like uh, Groucho. It is Marks, M-A-R-K-S, like, you know... Hand marks on a paper exactly ballot. Right. Uh, Marilyn R. Marks the number one on Twitter, and of course, uh, her group is CoalitionForGoodGovernance.org. Uh, Marilyn, uh, you're you're doing a hell of a job moving. Uh, hopefully, moving the Georgia legislature and the rest of the country with it. Uh, stay in touch as this moves forward, and because uh, I, yeah, suspect this Thanks. disease is going to be spreading.
3: I'm afraid it is. Thank you for your help with this, Brad.
1: You bet. Thank you. Okay, a quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report, where we actually have some some pretty encouraging news for a change there, uh, and some less encouraging news. That's why they call it the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Just a quick thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi Doyen and I stay on your public airwaves. You're the only thing that keeps us on those public airwaves. We don't rely on uh, corporate support or political support. We rely on you and your support is needed now more than ever at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. now i'm now i'm concerned i oversold the amount of good news in our green news report
2: (laughs) well you know we'll let the listeners be the judge of that
1: welcome back to the bradcast brad friedman from bradblog.com and uh, all right you can decide yourself listeners Let's get right to it. Our latest Green News report. The implications of living in the nation's oil and gas capital became all too clear after Hurricane Harvey slammed Houston last August.
2: Hurricane Harvey's toxic legacy much worse than publicly revealed. EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt gives another gift to the auto industry, plus...
3: I will never sign another bill like this again. I'm not going to do it
2: again. Massive omnibus bill has good news for national parks, firefighting, and a tiny village in Alaska.
1: All of that surprising good news and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And
2: I'm Desi Doyen.
1: Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment.
2: This is all you really need to know about climate change. Number one, it's real. Number two, man-made emissions caused it. And number three, that's why women need to rule the world.
1: <laughs> oh, man Slam! This is your Green News Report.
2: I'm sick of cleaning up after you guys.
1: I know Okay, Desi Doyen, so the Hurricane Harvey response wasn't quite as impressive as Donald Trump pretended?
2: Uh, Yeah, that's definitely the case. Six months after Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, Texas and shattered the record for the largest single deluge ever recorded in U.S. history, a massive study of county, state, and federal records conducted by the Associated Press and the Houston Chronicle has found that Harvey had a much more widespread toxic impact than has been previously made public. The reporters cataloged more than 100 releases of more than a dozen toxic chemicals and carcinogens that were released into neighborhoods and Waterways. Yet officials at the time assured the public that the post-storm pollution posed little to no health threat. The analysis found only a handful of these industrial spills have been investigated by federal regulators and state regulators have taken no enforcement actions at all for these toxic releases. Mm. Meanwhile, a heads up, Bloomberg News reports that Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Scott Pruitt will soon begin the formal process of aggressively weakening fuel economy standards that were set under the Obama administration. This would be for new vehicles starting in 2022 and to which automakers had already agreed to do back in 2012.
1: I guess this is because Trump voters enjoy paying more for their gas?
2: Yes, apparently so. These standards would have decreased air pollution and greenhouse gas emissions and saved consumers money but now they won't thanks to intense lobbying from the U.S. auto industry. And Pruitt also indicated that he may try to strip the state of California of its special waiver to maintain tougher air pollution standards under the Clean Air Act which a number of states have also adopted.
1: California is not you know the arbiter of these issues the EPA, the DOT and others make those decisions. California uh, contributes as well, but that that shouldn't and can't dictate to the rest of the country what these levels are going to be. I feel like I remember this story, have seen it before, uh, that this is what happened when the George W. Bush administration came in and they challenged California's more stringent environmental protection standards and they won at the time in the Supreme Court. We finally turned that back, but now it looks like the same old fight again.
2: That is exactly what happened in the past, and it looks like the federal government now is going to participate in switching the rules back and forth and back and forth again.
1: And if you have any questions about this, go see the movie Who Killed the Electric Car? We had an electric car way back in the 90s called the EV1 that everybody liked who had one, and the Bush administration helped kill that. And, well, everything old and stupid is new and being done all over again, I guess.
2: Meanwhile, Trump's Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke has launched a new outdoor recreation advisory panel to make recommendations on public lands policy and he's stocked it with industry representatives who have a financial interest in public lands. Washington Post reports that many of the 16 members of the new committee come from the motorized recreation vehicle industry. Other members have advocated for privatizing park services, while others represent companies companies with National Park Service contracts, not on the advisory panel, are anyone from the Outdoor Industry Association, which advocates for non-motorized activities like hiking and kayaking. But finally, some good news, the massive 1.3 trillion dollar omnibus bill that President Trump signed last week over his own objections not only retains the current budget of the EPA and retains clean energy policies as is, It also includes a big boost to the budget of the National Park Service to make much-needed infrastructure repairs. Also, a boost for the Forest Service's firefighting and fire prevention budget, which has long been sought by conservation and forestry groups in the wake of record wildfire seasons across the nation. Also in the omnibus bill, and also very good news, a tiny town in Alaska that is threatened by climate change has finally received some federal funding to relocate. The small village of Newtok, Alaska, has been losing 70 feet of land every year due to sea level rise and coastal erosion. Congress has now appropriated $15 million to begin relocating New Talk to a safer location nine miles inland. It's only a fraction of what's required to relocate the whole village, but it's a start.
1: I'll take it. For much more on all of those reports and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report.
2: <laughs> there you go.
1: Yes. Cheery, huh?
2: Yeah, we have to keep fighting for the same things over and over and over again, but that's what we have to do.
1: I guess we do. Uh, all right, got to get out here. Oh, uh, very quickly from Thomas P., who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help support our independent efforts here to continue to independently inform the public over your public airwaves five days a week Uh, Thomas writes, thanks for fighting the good fights, Brad and Desi when I get in discussions or write letters to the editor on voting issues in particular I know I am well informed because of your show your far flung and peaceful foot soldier in Pennsylvania Thomas,
2: Awesome. I
1: had sent him a thank you note and he said he knows now when he's writing about this, talking about this to not just say paper ballots but say hand marked paper ballots.
2: Yay! Keep
1: that mantra going. Thank you Thomas and thanks to all of you who have stopped by bradblog.com/donate to pledge your support, particularly with a sustaining monthly subscription of any amount you like to the broadcast. Um, We are fueled only by you, and we uh, appreciate your help there. All right, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Marilyn Marks of the Coalition for Good Governance, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can drop me email if you like. I am Bradcast at Bradblog.com and on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> Don't!